This morning, I want to begin by sharing a poem with you. And uh, this is a poem that I have shared before, but it fits so perfectly with our text today that I have to share it again. So please bear with me if you've heard this before, okay? It says this, There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish. And he travels to every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, bringing tears to the eyes of those who never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him, yet everyone fears him. His name? Death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, every one of us will be his sermon. Amen? We're like, oh my, right? Pretty uplifting. Now, I can I can hit, I can tell the uh, the laughs of the sarcastic laughs out here. Uh, I can you know of of all the uh, the poems to read twice. You're probably thinking, why did he read this one? And and the reason why we feel that way is because death is not a fun topic to talk about, is it? In our world today, we go out of our way to not even think about it. Many want nothing to do with death. But the problem is this. There's no way of avoiding it and no way to stop it when it comes. Death is relentless. It is certain. And it does not play favorites. It is impartial. You ever thought about that? doesn't matter how significant, how wealthy, or how intelligent one is, those people still die with the unknown, the poor, and the foolish. And this reality that we're all going to die someday, maybe today, has driven some to madness. Because for some people, this world is all there is. So if you strip that away, they're left with nothing. So many would prefer to not even think about death. And maybe some of you in here this morning are in this camp as well. If you had it your way, you would prefer to not even think about death. Well, I've got some news for you this morning. The Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible doesn't let us forget this truth that death is certain. The Bible constantly reminds us of the reality of death. But though that's the case, Though the scriptures stress to us time and time again the tragic truth that death is certain, we're also reminded time and time again of the terrific truth as well that tells us that there is hope beyond the grave for God's people. And that's the exact lesson we learn from our story today. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 11. This morning we are discussing the familiar and beloved story of Jesus and Lazarus. 
And in this story, we learn two very simple yet profound truths. The first truth we learn in this story is this. To know life is to know death. To know life is to know death. One of the things we learn early on in this life is that death is certain. And if you live long enough, the more you live, the more you learn about both life and death, right? The longer you live, you learn that not only is death certain, but it does not play favorites and at times is untimely and it cannot be bribed and it eventually comes to us all. Those are the facts. You remember the first time you came to this reality? Remember the first time you really and truly understood this truth? I'm sure for some of you in here, you were pretty young. The first time you lost someone close to you. Maybe you lost someone really close, like a sibling or a parent. When this happens, we are hit with this reality, whether we want to be or not. My oldest, Ava, is already asking me questions about death. Every time she hears the word death, or every time she sees me dress up to go preach a funeral, or, or every time she hears a little friend in one of her classes give a prayer request about a grandmother or grandfather who has died, she asks me questions, questions like, who dies, Dad? Does everybody? Are you going to? Already. At five years old, she's wrestling with the reality of death. And I know the more she learns about this life, the more she is going to learn about death because to know life is to know death. Well, the family in our story for today in John 11 is hit with this truth as well. Look at it with me. John 11, beginning in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now... Before I explain this here, let me set the stage for you of what's going on here. Remember back in John chapter 10, remember Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. And remember, he makes contrast between himself and those he referred to as the blind guides of Israel, the Pharisees, to make the point that they were the poor shepherds. They were the poor leaders. In fact, he calls them thieves and robbers in John 10. He's saying this to make the point that they are the people who are, who are leading people astray. And he also says that he is the good shepherd to make the point that he is the one who is to be looked to and trusted and followed. Well, as you can imagine, this teaching doesn't go over very well. This teaching does not add to Jesus' popularity. This makes the Pharisees very angry, and they're seeking all the more to arrest him. And in response, Jesus flees. He gets out of the area. He leaves Judea. He leaves Jerusalem, but because it's not yet time for him to lay down his life. So he goes. He flees. And while he's gone, he receives word that his good friend Lazarus is deathly ill. Look at John chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus has fled the area, and while he's away, he receives word from this family that he is very close to. He receives word from these sisters who are dear friends of his that their brother, another close friend of Jesus, Lazarus, is sick and on the verge of death. And when he receives word, Jesus waits a little while and then he eventually makes his way back to the Judean area, back to Bethany, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. So he makes this long journey back to Bethany and when he gets there, Lazarus is dead. And when Jesus arrives, Mary stays in the house, I believe, because she's just too torn up to even leave the house. You ever felt like that? She's mourning the death of her brother. She's in, in, in such a deep state of mourning, she doesn't even go out to meet Jesus when he comes. But Martha comes out to meet him and says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here we have the conflict of the story. Like I've said in the past, every good story has conflict. And the conflict in this story is that Lazarus is dead. This great godly family who are close followers of the Lord Jesus have lost their brother. I mean, this is just a tragic beginning to this story, isn't it? It really is. And again, this is a problem that many of us are all too familiar with. Many of us have lost loved ones like this, some too young in the prime of their life, and for no good reason. That's a problem. That's the major problem in this story, and that's the major problem in life, isn't it? We live in a world that is marked by and plagued by death. We live in a world where death is certain, and this is the problem in John 11. Now, just a side note here. I want you to notice a pattern that we see here repeated throughout the book of John. You know, I always try to point out patterns as we study through books together because this will really make your Bible reading come alive. And there are a lot of patterns in Scripture, and it's very important that we make these connections as we read. And hopefully you're noticing already that the book of John is filled with great stories that teach us amazing truths about Jesus. And in almost every story in John, you have a problem that Jesus is coming to solve. Notice that? Chapter 2. Remember at the wedding in Cana, they run out of wine. And what does Jesus do? He comes and turns water into wine. Chapter 3. You have a lost and confused Nicodemus. And you have Jesus with answers of how one is to be born again. In chapter 3, you have the woman at the well with a spiritual thirst that she cannot quench. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and offers her living water that can quench her spiritual thirst. In chapter 5, you have the lame man at the pool, and Jesus heals him. In chapter 6, you have the hungry multitude, and Jesus takes this boy's lunch, and he multiplies it and feeds over 5,000 people. Skip on down to chapter 9, and you have the man who is blind, both physically and spiritually, and Jesus restores his sight, both physically and spiritually. In chapter 10, you have the blind guides of Israel who are leading people astray. 
And you have Jesus, the good shepherd, who is known by the gatekeeper and who leads God's people the right way through the right door. And here, in chapter 11, we come face to face with the ultimate problem in life, the problem of death. That's a big problem, isn't it? That we all die. Death is certain. Anyone who knows anything about life knows that. We live in a world that is marked and is characterized by death. We're reminded of this truth daily, aren't we? How many of y'all still receive and read the newspaper? Anybody? Raise your hand. A few of you still holding on? Yeah. Ah. Just kidding. Yeah. Well, think about this. For those of y'all who read the newspaper, or those of y'all who are familiar with the newspaper, kids, that's a, it's a piece of paper. It's got news on it. Used to be thrown by a paper boy. I don't know what that is. Okay. Um, think about this. Every time you, you, you read a paper, you're reminded of this truth, aren't you? Daily, you receive tragic reports of people who have lost their lives. You hear of people who have died in car accidents, people who have died due to natural disasters. You also read about evil people who have taken the lives of others. We even have a section in the paper filled with names of people, young and old, who have died in the past 48 hours from all sorts of things. We're reminded of the certainty of death on a daily basis. Our world is dominated by death. We live in a world that's been marked with death. It's unbelievable when you take the time to really, really think about it. Well, how did we get here? The Bible tells us, right? We learn how we got to this place in the first book of the Bible, chapters 2 and 3. Listen to Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So, y'all know the story, right? God creates Adam and Eve and places them in a garden paradise, and he says to them, this garden is for you, it's for your pleasure, it's for your enjoyment, it's for your good. But God also says, I am your God, and you are to be under my authority. And there is one rule that I have for you. You're not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, for the day you do, you will surely die. And we all know what goes down next, right? The very next chapter, man chose to rebel against God, and they ate from the forbidden tree. The one command that God gave, they disobeyed. And as a result... Sin enters into the world. And as a result of sin, death enters in as well. So as a result of the first act of rebellion, death comes into the world and it plagues all of us, doesn't it? You see evidence of this throughout the rest of the Bible, throughout all of history until now. We're still being plagued by it. I mean, think about this though. How many chapters from this initial rebellion in Genesis 3, pass before the first death. How many chapters? Y'all know? One. One chapter. The very next chapter, chapter 4, we are exposed to the first death in the world. And it is a terrible, scandalous, horrendous death. It's a murder. And not just any murder, that'd be bad enough, right? But you have a brother killing another brother. 
I'm sure that was a sign to everybody. We are messed up now. We've got a brother killing another brother. In chapter 4, we learn about the first set of brothers. We learn about how the older brother Cain kills his younger brother Abel. A brother killing another brother. It's, it's awful. And things don't get any better, do they? I mean, after this first rebellion in Genesis 3, the world is never the same. I mean, ever since this time, ever since sin entered into the world, death has been a common theme in the lives of everyone. I mean, think about it. No one is spared from death. Death comes to us all. All of us, without exception, at one time or another, will experience the pain that comes from losing a loved one. Something that we all have experienced and will experience. Our loved ones die and we die. And like I said at the beginning, this truth, that death is certain, this truth that we're all going to die someday, maybe today, is really upsetting to many. So much so that some worry themselves to death about death. And others try to avoid the topic altogether. Some are scared to death of death. That's all they think about, all they worry about, and they're constantly doing any and everything in their power to avoid it, while others make light of it or even ignore it. William Somerset Maugham once said, death is a very dull and dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. Many take this approach. They ignore the reality of death, and they, they try their hardest to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. But the problem is this. There's no way of avoiding it and no way to stop it when it comes Death is a reality. Death is certain. And the more we know about life, the more we know this to be true. And listen, folks, I want you to understand this. God wants us to get it. God wants us to understand this truth. He wants us to know that death is certain. He doesn't want us to ignore this reality. He wants us to come face to face with it, which is why he goes to great lengths in his word to make this truth known. And this is why I believe Jesus delays his coming to Mary and Martha. Look at verse 3 and then verses 5 through 7 of John 11. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. If Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, then why did he stay two days longer and let Lazarus die? That sounds heartless, not loving, doesn't it? If he could do something about it? So why does he do it? Well, here's why I believe. I believe it's because he knows that it's good for them to understand and experience this truth, that death is certain, that it comes to us all no matter who we are. Notice here in the story, you have this good, godly family close to Jesus. You have Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, who gets sick and dies. You have these sisters who are very close to the Lord, who lose their brother all too soon to illness. And we see here Jesus 
wanted them to experience this, that death is certain. He wanted them to know that it doesn't matter who you are, how good or how bad, how wicked or how devout, how loved or how despised, death comes to everybody. Jesus wanted them to realize this. Why? Why? Here it is. So that they would come to understand that life without him is hopeless, but life with him is glorious. That's what he wanted them to get. Life without him is hopeless, but life with him is glorious. It's what he wanted them to realize. It's why he allows them to experience this. He wanted them to understand that though death is certain, he is Savior. He wants them to know that though to know life is to know death, to know and experience him is to truly know life. And that's our final point. Though to know life is to know death, number two, to know Jesus is to know life. To know Jesus is to truly know life. Look at John 11, verses 23 through 26. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus tells Martha, your brother is going to live again. He's going to rise again. And Martha says, yeah, 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 I know Jesus, you know. I know there's coming this resurrection in the final days, in the last days, and my brother will rise again. But notice what Jesus says here. He says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection. He says, the resurrection is not just something out there, something way off in the future. He says, I am the resurrection. To know me is to know the resurrection. To experience me is to experience the resurrection. He's saying, when you think of the resurrection, don't think of it as something on this future day just far from and removed from you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you come to me, if you believe in me, then you will experience the resurrection and will come to truly experience life. As many of you know, who know the rest of the story, Jesus doesn't just leave it at this, does he? He demonstrates the truthfulness of these claims by performing one of the greatest miracles in his earthly ministry. Remember earlier we said that, that here we're, we're faced with one of our biggest problems in life, the fact that we die. But in John 11, we also have one of the greatest miracles in Jesus' earthly ministry. Let's take a look at it. Look at John chapter 11, verse 38. This is so good. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Stop there for a minute. So we see here that Jesus comes to the tomb, the place where Lazarus' body lay, and as he approaches the tomb, he says, take away the stone. And Martha responds with, uh, not a good idea, Jesus. 
His body has been in there four days. It doesn't smell good. There's going to be a bad odor. I love the way the King James puts it. It says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. It's a proper way of saying it, all right? It said, don't, don't roll back the stone, Lord. Thou stinketh, you know? That's good. He stinketh, yeah. You, you see here that... that she already knows a lot about death, doesn't she? Remember the previous point, to know life is to know death? She knows very well. The body wastes away in the grave. Well, let's keep reading here in verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So here's what we have here. Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb four days by the time Jesus arrives. And when Jesus gets there, he goes to the tomb and he tells them to roll away the stone and he calls into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, I imagine you could probably have heard a pin drop when this was taking place. People were probably thinking to themselves, this guy, Jesus, has lost his mind. But picture this, as quickly as they were thinking that, they began to hear something coming, something moving from inside the tomb. And a few seconds later, Lazarus comes out probably hopping out because his hands and feet are bound. Can you imagine what was going through their minds as they were witnessing this? Imagine what it would have been like to be there. At first, you just have this sad and miserable scene. You have this beloved friend and brother, Lazarus, who has died all too soon from illness, and people are devastated. Mary's so torn up, she doesn't leave the house to see Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and Lazarus comes out. And in a moment, he is standing before them, whole, alive, and well. I'm sure they were in a state of shock. I mean, wouldn't you be? First, they were devastated. Then they were shocked. And I'm sure then they were overjoyed because they have their dear friend and brother Lazarus back again and I'm sure it was a wonderful homecoming now I've heard people in the past read this story and say things like you know what I wonder where Lazarus was for four days I wonder what he saw I wonder where he went well I want to make the point here very clearly that John emphasizes what he emphasizes for a reason you know, I'm sure that Lazarus shared his experiences, but John doesn't include any of that. Why? Did John not know about it? I'm sure he did. I'm sure word traveled fast about all the details from this, and he knows all the details surrounding it, but he doesn't say anything about that. Why? Because it's not important 
what Lazarus saw or where he went. What's important is who Jesus is. And that's exactly where the text takes us. John tells us this story to make the point that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's making the point here that to know life is to know death, but to know Jesus is to know resurrection and life. That's the main point of this story. And that's what John emphasizes. He emphasizes that we live in a world that is marked with and characterized by death. That's the tragic truth from this story. Yet he also emphasizes that Jesus has come to bring the solution. He is the resurrection and the life. Therefore, to know and believe in Him, to trust in Him, to experience Him is to truly know life. Jesus can provide life in the midst of death. That's John's point. Now how is it that Jesus can do this? How can he provide light and life in the midst of a dark and dead world? Well, John answers this for us in this chapter. First reason why is because he is the Christ. He is the Christ. Look at John eleven twenty seven. Remember, Jesus asked Martha, Do you believe that I am who I claim to be? And she responds with, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. See, Martha had a, had a great understanding about who Jesus is, didn't she? She knew Jesus was special. Notice she confesses here that he is the Christ. He is the one who has come down to bring light and life to a dark and dead world. He is the Christ. He is Lord. She understood this to an extent. Listen, the reason Jesus can bring life and light in the midst of a dark and dead world is because of who he is. He is the Christ. He is Lord. There's a second reason that Jesus is able to do this, and it's not simply because of who he is, but it's because of what he has done. And what has he done? Here it is. You ready? He has identified with us. He is the Christ, he is Lord, and he has identified with us. He has come down to this earth as one of us. He has identified with us in every way. Around Christmas time, we sing the great Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in this song are these lyrics. Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Listen, Jesus was pleased to take on flesh and become one of us. He was pleased to become a man to dwell with men. He became a man, just, just as human as you or I. That's the, that's the extent that he has gone through to identify with us. He has identified with us in every way. Notice in this text the, that he identifies with our sorrow. John 11, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's a powerful verse. This is the extent that Jesus has gone through to identify with us. He has been where we have been. He has felt what we have felt. He has 
become one of us in every way to the point of shedding tears. It's what many theologians refer to as the humiliation of Jesus. Jesus has taken a big step down by becoming one of us. And as Paul says, he has humbled himself to such an extent that he gave his life for us. Paul says he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did Jesus willingly take on flesh, but he took on death for us so that he might rise and defeat death in our place so that in him we might experience light and life in the midst of darkness and death. That's what Jesus has done for us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those I described at the beginning of this sermon who don't even like to consider the sobering truth that you're going to die someday, maybe today. You know, I wish I could bring you words of comfort this morning and tell you don't worry about it. It's not going to happen anytime soon. But listen, I can't make that guarantee to anybody, self-included. Truth is, none of us know. But what I can do is this. I can tell you how to be prepared when that day comes. And I can give you a hope that lasts beyond the grave. Like we've said already, death is the greatest consequence of our sin and our greatest enemy in the world. But though that's the case, get this. Though we have sinned against God and we have severed this relationship with Him and now die as a result of our sinfulness, you know what? Scripture tells us very clearly that God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, He reached down to us again and offered salvation to us, accomplished salvation for us through the person and work of His Son. Christ came to this earth to be for us what we could not be for ourselves, perfect inside and out, and came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, make us right with God. And how did he do it? Again, this is so amazing. I've shared this with you before. Get this. He did it by willingly taking on, accepting, and experiencing the greatest consequence of sin for us. Christ willingly went to the cross, and he died for us. And he took on the sins of the world for us, your sins and my sins, so that we could be made right with God. He experienced death for us, not just physical death, but spiritual death for us. Why? So that we might live. For those of you here today who are discouraged about the fact that death is certain, that it's an inescapable reality. Consider the words of Christ again in John eleven twenty five through 26, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus offers us here is better than a long life here on earth, folks. He offers us eternal life with God. You want to be ready for your dying day? You need the work that Christ has done applied to your life. And you can have that work applied to you today if you would trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.